Chapter 6 Into the Ukraine Like France, Russia had been preparing for war. But unlike France, Russia was ready. By the time Hitler launched his attack, the Red Army had become the largest in the world, its warplanes equaling the rest of the world's air forces put together, its tanks outnumbering the rest of the world's tanks. Yet in spite of this formidable force, the German Wehrmacht was phenomenally successful in the beginning of the Russian campaign. Stalin, reassured by the non-aggression pact with Germany, had left the western border mostly undefended. So when Germany struck, there was little resistance. Since Hitler's intent was to defeat Russian forces in three to four months, he sent his troops into Russia at a rapid rate. And in the first two days of the offensive, this goal seemed realistic. The Luftwaffe swooped in and destroyed 2,000 Russian planes before they ever had the chance to leave the ground, well-nigh eradicating the world's largest air force. In one week, the Germans were halfway to Moscow. In two weeks, half a million Russians had been killed and one million soldiers taken prisoner. In the first month, Hitler's forces had won an area twice the size of their own country. In just two engagements, the Russians lost 6,000 tanks. At 5 a.m. on July 1, 1941, just eight days after the initial assault on Russia, the pioneers were ordered to cross the Polish border and enter the Ukraine at Sokol. An electric sense of danger filled the air as they stepped onto Soviet soil. Franz felt it keenly. We are part of the Eastern Front now, he told himself. We're no longer just bridge builders like we were in Poland. We're going to have to fight our way forward into new territory. Nervously, his palm polished the top of the gleaming black holster. Underneath its flap, he felt the bulk of his useless wooden pistol. Lord God of heaven and earth, he prayed, please preserve me. Day by day, the pioneers developed new routines. Since enemy activity might explode anywhere, before relaxing after each day's march, they had to carefully search their camping area for Russian soldiers in ambush. Everywhere, they saw signs of active combat. They passed a cemetery where a previous German unit had hastily set up a prisoner-of-war camp, and from which the Russian prisoners stared at the passing pioneers with hate-filled eyes. Twisted Russian tanks and planes and trucks sprawled across the landscape, with fly-covered bodies of their crew lying beside them. A field full of chillingly fresh graves marked the spot where a whole unit of German soldiers had been wiped out by the Russians. With Friday approaching, something else began to weigh heavily on Franz's mind. Dear Lord, he whispered fearfully through dry lips, You know I treasure your Sabbath. It's important to you, and because it's important to you, it's important to me. Up to now, it's been pretty easy for me to keep your day by trading work. But now we're at the front, and the rules have changed. Please help me. And week by week, help came. The troops are exhausted, the Hauptmann suddenly announced that first Friday, we will have a rest day tomorrow. The next Friday, heavy downpours bogged the army down in mud. We must wait a couple of days until these unpaved roads are dry enough to proceed, declared Hauptmann Brandt. As the weeks went by, Franz noticed that God arranged events so that his Sabbath hours were protected. All the way to the very end of the war, except for one period of final hectic retreat when he lost track of time, Franz kept every Sabbath. Farther and farther east, the pioneers pushed. Druskopol, Berestechko, Katerinovka, Jampul, Belgorodka. 
unfamiliar names in a strange country. Their motorized vehicles had been sent ahead, so the men were on foot, yet carrying their guns and field packs they often covered thirty miles a day. They were chillingly alone, cut off from all communication with other German forces, and their provisions ran so low that finally they had only old bread to eat, green and hairy with mold. The pioneers weren't used to prolonged marching, and the exertion finally began to take its toll. As men fell by the wayside suffering from heat-stroke, their buddies would carry them over to the shade of a tree, wrap moist handkerchiefs around their heads, and leave them to their fate. The company had to move on. Some men developed such blisters on their feet that they could not tolerate boots any longer. They'd tug them off and limp along barefoot for a few miles till their bleeding feet could carry them no longer. No amount of pleading by their comrades or upbraiding by their commanders made a difference. We're exhausted, they said. We just can't go on. Please, please leave us and go. The lucky ones became prisoners of war, but most were killed outright by the vengeful Russians. Franz, too, was exhausted. After a few days his socks were in shreds, and huge blisters soon covered his feet. When the company stopped for a short lunch rest, he looked through his pack to find a clean rag. Everything was filthy, soaked in sweat and covered with the grime of the road. Finally, he took one of his dirty undershirts, tore it into strips and wrapped them around his feet before pulling his boots back on. It was no help. The blisters burst open and became infected. Franz was barely able to drag himself along until 699 made camp for the night. He was running a fever and lay moaning on his mat. Willy stopped by. Franz, have you had something to eat? I'm not hungry, Franz rasped. You must drink something. Come on, sit up. Willy held a tin cup to his friend's cracked lips. I brought you some boiled water. Franz choked and coughed, but managed to get down the warm liquid. Now eat a bit of bread. You must keep up your strengths. Franz forced himself to swallow a few bites. Then Willy removed his friend's boots. When he saw the fist-sized festering wounds, he groaned. Franz, there's a little stream not too far from here. Lean on me, and I will help you get there. It will give you some relief if you can cool your feet. With his arm around Willy's shoulder, Franz hobbled the few yards to the water. By the time he reached the creek, his feet had swollen to twice their size. When he stuck his tortured limbs into the murky, polluted water, he did feel relief. I can't move, he groaned. I'm too exhausted. Okay, said Willy. Just stay here a while. I'll bring your things. All you need is a good rest. I need more than that, Willy, Franz thought. My body is worn out and burning with fever. My feet are throbbing with infection. I need days, Willy. Days of rest. But that's not possible. There's nothing more I can do. Tomorrow, I'll be left behind like the others. I knew life in the army would be dangerous, but I never thought I would succumb to infection. He removed his feet from the water, gingerly dried them. Too worn out to follow his regular routine of Bible reading, he took out his Bible to read just a text before prayer. It fell open to Psalm 118, verse 17. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Stunned, he wrapped himself up in his gray army blanket. Then, lying there on the damp foreign soil, his body shaking with fever, Franz prayed, Dear Lord, you know that my life is committed to you. When I left home, I felt assured that you would bring me back safely to my family. 
Now you have given me another promise, but here I am, sick and unable to continue. Unless you help me, I am lost. I know that you are a promise-keeping God. I commit myself into your hands. Finally, Franz dropped off. Wake-up call at 3.15 a.m. Groggy, Franz rubbed the sleep out of his eyes. His headache and the shaking were gone. Well, I've had a good rest. If I can get my feet into my boots, maybe I can give it another try. He sat up, pulled his feet from under the gray blanket and looked at them. In the dim light, they shone whitely. Wait a minute, he muttered, blinking and squinting at them. That can't be. He reached out his hand and gingerly felt them with his fingers. Then he brushed at them harder and harder. They are healed. The hair tingled on his scalp. My feet are completely healed. Not just covered over with thick, fresh scabs, but with completely new, unbroken skin. Shaking his head in wonder, he pulled on his bloody socks, stepped into his boots, and marched stoutly over to wish an astonished Billy a good morning. For the remaining years of the war, Franz never again had trouble with his feet. The Pioneer Company's trucks rejoined them, and gradually the battalion came back together. Life settled into a routine, wake up between 3 and 5 a.m. and get on the move, advance all day, sometimes by truck, often by foot, spend the short nights in makeshift quarters, barns, churches, synagogues, schools. Usually these were infested with bedbugs that left the men covered with itching, stinging welts. By now, most of the pioneers also had lice. There was simply no chance to take a thorough bath. The men were amazed to see firsthand the effect of communism on the country. Decades before, the communists had confiscated all privately owned land and combined it into huge collective farms called kolkhoses. Each kolkhos consisted of fields that stretched from horizon to horizon. The former owners had to work their land like slaves, receiving no pay except the food they needed. The cattle were kept in one enormous barn. Since working harder wouldn't earn them more profit, the Ukrainians had no incentive to take pride in these farms, and everything was dirty and in poor repair. Only the women were allowed to privately keep chickens, ducks, and geese, and they lavished on them all the attention they neglected to give the government property. When the hungry Germans came through, they thought nothing of snatching the fowl and roasting them on spits over open fires at night. Hassel, they called. Come over and join us. No, comrades, I couldn't enjoy stolen foods that you have taken from starving people. Well, Mr. Holy Man, don't you know that there is no honor in war? Take what you can get and enjoy it while you're still alive. That's the motto. Besides, Selten Freulich took some geese himself. If he can do it, so can we. Franz shrugged. No matter what the lieutenant does, it's still stealing, he said, and it's still wrong. What if the situation were reversed and Russian soldiers were stealing food from your starving children? One of the soldiers spat angrily. That kind of talk makes me furious, he snapped. You're so stupid. You know perfectly well that Germany will never be invaded. You always talk as if you don't believe that. If you don't shut up with your subversive ideas, I'll beat you to a pulp. Without a reply, Franz turned back to his office. Two days later, orders came from the general that all looting was strictly forbidden and that anyone caught with stolen goods would be transferred to a correction battalion where he would be given arduous and dangerous assignments. The stealing stopped. Franz couldn't help himself. There you are, he said to the men. What did I tell you? A few weeks after this incident, Franz was promoted again, 
this time to Corporal. He was also made the accountant and paymaster for Pioneer Park Company 699. As such, he kept the books for his unit and handled all the money. Every ten days he gave the soldiers their service pay. Because they were part of the Eastern Front, they were entitled to combat area service compensation. It amounted to one extra Reichsmark, about a dollar every payday. Apparently, the constant peril to their lives was not rated very highly. Franz also ordered food, clothing, and other provisions from Germany. When they weren't on the march, he set up a small store where the men could buy soap, razors, and other necessities. His superiors did not bother to audit his records. They knew they could trust him absolutely. Steadily, the company advanced east. Often they passed disabled Russian tanks. Once they passed 2,300 Russian prisoners of war marching west to a German prison camp guarded by only 12 German soldiers. When it rained, the men got soaked to the skin. When there was a cloudburst, the unpaved roads became impassable, and 699 got a day or two of rest. Franz used this opportunity to spread his wet office papers out on the roofs of houses to dry them. One Friday, the sergeant, Erich Neuhaus, came to Franz. Hassel, I want you to write a ten-day report tomorrow so I can send it to headquarters. Yes, sir, Franz saluted smartly. Don't salute me, Hassel. I'm not a commissioned officer. I'm a sergeant. Yes, sergeant. By the way, I want to make you aware that all the paper is wet. So? If I put it in the typewriter, it will tear. Oh. The sergeant paused. Well, when do you think it will be dried out? By Sunday. All right, do it then. Another Friday came. Hassel, you need to do the end of the month closeout of the accounting records tomorrow. Yes, sir. But there's one problem. What's that? There's quite a bit of business on the store on Saturday night. Since the first of the month is until Sunday, that should really be included in the figures. You're right. Better wait till Sunday. Without seeming insubordinate, Franz always convinced them that the task could be done better if it was done on Sunday. Sometimes on Sabbath his fellow soldiers approached him. Franz, can you sell me some soap? I don't know if there's any left. I didn't get any in the last shipment. But if you wait until tonight, I'll do my best to find some for you. Oh, of course. This is your service. I forgot. The soldiers had accepted long ago that they could get no work out of France on Sabbath. In August, the rains came more frequently, turning the countryside into a gigantic lake of mud. The Germans, however, were not to be held back. Doggedly, they pushed on. When their trucks sank into the mud up to the axles, the men heaved them back out. Finally, though, the mud got deep enough to run into the tops of the soldiers' boots, and it took them several hours to travel only a few hundred feet. We're so bogged down that we'll have to stop for now, said the officers, shaking their heads. Even German determination can't defeat the forces of nature. When the sun finally did come back out, it took the pioneers an additional two days to tidy themselves and get their equipment back in running order. During the next heavy downpour, they wisely stayed in their billets. Though they didn't know it then, the heavy rains brought the entire war on the Eastern Front to a standstill. The powerful German Wehrmacht was immobilized, not by the enemy, but by the mud. Eventually, the pioneers reached Cherkasy on the western bank of the river Dnieper. Here, where the mighty river was five miles wide, they were ordered to build a bridge across it. They were joined by four other battalions, 6,000 men total, to help them with a formidable task. Part of the company went into the forest to cut down trees. 
21 men operated a Ukrainian sawmill, another 25 a nail factory, which produced not only nails but also braces and metal trestles. The logs were transported to the sawmill, cut into the exact measurements calculated by the engineers, and hauled directly to where the rest of the men were building the bridge. The Germans ran into increasing opposition from the Red Army, and the advance slowed. Often the battle seesawed back and forth, squadrons of Russian planes dropped bombs, and German flat cannons shot them down. Then, while the planes lay burning in the fields, the famous German Stuka's dive bombers, short for Stuchkampfluchzeug, swooped in and destroyed the last resistance. Yet no sooner did the Germans relax than the Russians launched a counter-attack with tanks, after which the Wehrmacht promptly surrounded the Russians and wiped them out with mortars and howitzers. On and on it went, heavy losses on both sides. One Saturday the pioneers were surrounded by Russians. Quickly Lieutenant Gutschok mobilized them. Hassel, you and Weber go into the empty dairy and defend our position to the south, he yelled. Here he comes, sought Franz. He cleared his throat and tried to speak calmly. Lieutenant, today is my Sabbath. I cannot participate. What's that, Hassel? I cannot participate. I am sorry, sir. Kuchok was stunned. This is war, soldier. We are fighting for our lives. I am sorry, sir, Franz repeated. Hassel, are you refusing an order? Yes, sir, Franz responded, standing at attention. The lieutenant turned beet red. I have had enough of you, he roared. This time you will get your just desserts and nobody will be able to save you. I will personally see to that. After the Russians had successfully been pushed back, the lieutenant made a notation in Franz's Verpas, his service record, that when the war ended he was to be executed for refusing to obey a superior officer's orders. The pioneers, though an engineering unit, were often caught in the fighting zone. One afternoon Franz and Karl did guard duty while the other men were busy fortifying an anti-tank barrier surrounding a village. Suddenly there was a flash of fire and an ear-splitting explosion. They ran to the scene and found a soldier named Heinrich Kolbmacher, with half his face blown off and his bowels torn out. He'd stepped on a landmine. All they could do was hold his head and comfort him while his screams rent the air. Mother, help me! Oh, Mama, I need you! Where are you, Mama? Mercifully, his suffering was soon over, and they buried him the same evening. There was not much to say. This loss was especially sad because the previous spring, Heinrich's little house in Germany had been destroyed by a British bomber. In death, he left a wife and four children behind. As company clerk, Franz had the task of notifying the widow and of sending Heinrich's few belongings back home to her. Sadly, he wondered if someone else would have to perform this duty for him someday. For the next four years, this was the pattern of life for the German army. This has been a production of Solemn Appeal Ministries, all rights reserved. For more information, please visit us at SolemnAppeal.com or call 1-800-242-2222.
888-449-1452.